You're listening to the Grace Covenant East Lincoln Audio Podcast. We are going to dig into the Word as we continue on in our Be Free series and we look at Galatians chapter 2. And we're going to draw out some very significant principles that are necessary for a very significant aspect in the calling of our life as believers. Uh, so you can just trust that we're going to walk away from here with something really, really good. Now, um, by way of overview, as we just begin to look at Ephesians, I'm in the wrong book and everything, in Galatians chapter 2, um, I would want to say first that when you look at Galatians chapter 2, it's divided into two primary segments. Verses 1 through 10, which deals with one scenario with Paul. And then verses 11 through 21, which is a completely different story, different scenario uh, with Paul. And that's what we're going to focus on today. But before we do, I want to take some time to just summarize what's happening in the first 10 verses. I want us to walk away with a fairly full understanding of the entire chapter. And I think that perhaps the best way for me to... Uh, summarize what's happening in the first 10 verses is just to use an old journalistic approach of who, what, when, where, how, what was the outcome. And I think that can best summarize the story. So we begin with the what, Paul. And you say, well, that sounds like a who, not a what. And listen, Paul takes a trip. He's a missionary. So that's what missionaries do. He's on another missionary trip. If we look at Paul's missionary journal or his trip log, then we find revealed the who. So who was with Paul? Paul had with him on this trip um, his missionary partner, um, Barnabas. Barnabas traveled with him, and then they invited along a younger man by the name of Titus. And it's very uh, important that we note, it's important to the story that we note that Titus was a believer who was a Gentile who was uncircumcised. That's very significant to this story. So where did they go? Well, they went to Jerusalem. This was Paul's second trip of five trips to Jerusalem. It happened about 14 years after his conversion. It was the trip prior to the Jerusalem Council. Uh, Why did he go? Well, he went because he was seeking out validation. Not in an insecure way, oh, please validate me. But um, he wanted validation that the gospel or the content of the gospel that he was teaching was actually the true gospel. He knew it was, but there had been um, some false Christians, so to speak, who were making accusations against him that the gospel that he was teaching was not a true gospel. And the reason they were saying that is because Paul was not teaching that circumcision was a requirement for salvation. And so he, uh, he went about this by uh, asking for a private audience with Peter, James, and John. And uh, rather than doing it publicly, and as he got there and he met with Peter, James, and John, they actually did validate the content of the gospel that he had been teaching, despite the fact that there had been these false Christians, these legalists, who were declaring or um, accusing of the fact that the gospel that he was teaching was indeed counterfeit. How do we know that they validated his gospel? Well, we know because the scripture tells us that... uh, uh, At that meeting, they did not require that Titus, remember Titus, who was a Gentile and who was a believer, who was not circumcised, they did not require that he be circumcised, but they still said, yes, he's a believer. He he has faith in Jesus Christ. And so what that said is 
that circumcision or obedience to the law is not a prerequisite for salvation. They validated the content of the gospel. In fact, the only thing that they said, Paul, we just want to make sure you continue to teach what you're teaching and be sure to take care of the poor along the way. And Paul was already doing that. He was well involved in that because he uh, was already taking up an offering because of the famine that was occurring. So now with that, we have a summary of the first 10 verses. So what I want to do next is I want to transition into the latter portion where we're going to focus, and I want to do that by way of a question. I want to ask you a question, and we're going to toy with that question for just a few moments, and then um, I'm going to actually have us look at a, briefly at a passage of Scripture in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses uh, 17 and 18, and the reason it's going to narrow the focus of our teaching this morning, the thing that we really want to zero in on, and then we're going to unpack some of the details of the verses 11 through 21. So you ready? Are you ready to go? Okay, let me ask you a question. Very simple question, and it's this. Who are you? You don't have to answer it out loud, but who are you? How would you complete this sentence? I am... Now, hopefully, as soon as I said that, there were some things that began to come to your mind, practically speaking. And maybe some of those things would be, I am a dad. I'm a mom. I'm a grandfather. I'm a grandmother. I'm a brother. I'm a sister. Or perhaps you went to vocation and you said, I'm a banker. I'm a broker. I'm a technician. And that list could go on and on and on and on, probably for as many people or in this room, there could be that many different answers. But what if we were to think in terms of spiritually? If I ask you, who am I? And you finish the statement, I am, and you begin to think about who you are in Christ. How would you answer that? And as you ponder that, hopefully things come to mind like, I'm saved. I'm born again. I'm loved. I am free. I am a new creation in Christ. I am a son of God. I am a daughter of God. I am a child of God. And again, that list could go on and on and on because the scripture is so rich with um, our identification of who we are in Christ. But now I want us to look at the passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Verses 5 through 17. You can turn there, but it's also up on the screens. Because in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, it actually adds uh, uh, one more part of our identity. And again, it's the part that we want to focus in on today. So let me read it to you. In verse 17, it says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. All this is from God. And listen to this. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So according to that passage, one of the significant portions of our call as believers is that we have been called to the ministry of reconciliation. So therefore, we could finish the statement, I am, I am a reconciler. I have been called to the ministry of reconciliation, therefore I am a reconciler. Well, what does that mean? What does it mean that we would call ourselves reconcilers? What does it mean to be called to the ministry 
of reconciliation? Well, I can begin to unpack that by saying we, the church, uh, as reconcilers, we're called to, to be representatives of the truth, the love, and the grace of Jesus Christ. Let me say that again. As reconcilers, as the church, we are called to represent the truth, the love, and the grace of Jesus Christ. There's a flip side to that. I want to tell you that that actually comes with great challenge. And the reason it comes with great challenge is because of the culture that we live in. And this has been true since the fall in the Garden of Eden. Here's the challenge that the culture presents to us. Our culture is filled with deceptive ways of thinking, deceptive mindsets, deceptive belief systems. And the problem with these deceptive belief systems, first, is that they're deceptive, but they, they, uh, the goal of those deceptive belief systems is to uh, saturate who we are, uh, actually to kind of mess up our identity in Christ and our mission as the church and, and as it infiltrates us as individuals, as it saturates us with, as individuals, it also infiltrates the church because the church isn't a building, right? We are the church. And what happens is as those faults, uh, those deceptive belief systems begin to infiltrate us and they infiltrate the church, they cause strife and conflict within the church. And then we find division. And when there's division, we're unable to be effective in our mission that we've been called to through Jesus Christ, the mission of the gospel. Right? Are you following me so far? So what this means that, and here's what it means to be a reconciler or to be called uh, to the ministry of reconciliation. As believers, as the church, we must be able to identify these false belief systems. And then as we identify these false belief systems, we need to be able to um, be so knowledgeable of the gospel of Jesus Christ that we are able to reconcile the false belief system to the knowledge of Jesus Christ, to the message of the gospel, so that the gospel always wins out and the deceptive uh, belief systems are proven to be what they are, deceptive, counterfeit, not true. That's our mission as the church, that's what we've been called to. We cannot allow the false belief systems of our culture to short-circuit our mission as a church, as the church, the body of Christ. We have to be effective in, in what we're doing. So what I want us to do now is to look at Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 21, because it's there that we're going to find out in greater deal uh, in greater detail, what it means to be a reconciler, how that process is lived out. So uh, I want to, we're doing a study in the Word this morning, right? So it would make sense that I would actually read those 11 verses to you. So I'm going to take time to do that, and then we're going we're gonna to pull them apart a little bit. So I'm going to begin, I'm going to read to you, beginning in Galatians chapter 2, verse 11. It says, When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. Before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, uh, 
uh, by his hypocrisy, uh, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish, follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we, too, have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law, because by observing the law, no one will be justified. If while we seek to be justified in Christ, it becomes evident that we ourselves are sinners, does that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, I prove that I am a lawbreaker. For, the, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. Listen, I love this, this portion of the passage. I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That in itself is the message of the gospel. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if by righteousness, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. I feel like we could just say amen and go home because the gospel has been presented in its fullness. It is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and saved me, gave himself for me. And here's what that means. That there's nothing that I can do in observance to the law that will add to my salvation. It is not a requirement. A call to a holy lifestyle is... But it's not by observing the law. That's the content of the message of the gospel that Paul was teaching. Now, I want to summarize that passage for you, too. And again, I think the best way I could do that is through that old journalistic who, what, when, how, where, what approach. Um, and so let me start with the who. The who is Paul and Peter, obviously, this time. The where, uh, it happens in Antioch. And the what is Paul confronts Peter's misconduct. Paul confronts Peter's misconduct. Why? The bottom line is Peter's conduct is filled with hypocrisy. That's what the passage said. He was being a hypocrite. He was filled with hypocrisy. And the hypocrisy is that when he first came to Antioch, he was willing to eat a meal with the Gentile believers who had not been circumcised. But when James's friends came... The legalists, the Jewish uh, sect who were legalists, when they came, uh, Peter actually withdrew from the Gentile believers. He wouldn't eat with them anymore because he was afraid of what the legalists would say. That's his hypocrisy. And so Paul, knowing that this was a false mindset, this was a false belief system, it was actually false doctrine, had no... Uh, the only thing he could do was to confront Peter so that the, the deception could be reconciled to the truth of the gospel. And that's exactly what he did. Um, here's what Paul faced uh, in this scenario. Uh, Paul was confronted with a belief system that promoted law observance as a requirement for salvation. In other words, it annulled the grace of God. 
Paul was confronted with a belief system that eliminated certain people from the church. If you were circumcised, you were in. If you were uncircumcised, you were out. If you were uncircumcised, this Jewish sect, this legalist sect, believed you, there's no way that you can be a believer. If you're a Gentile, you have to convert to Judaism and you have to uh, be circumcised to, uh, to prove that, that's, that you've converted. He was faced with a, a belief system that brought division in the church. It created an us and them mentality. Again, if you were circumcised, you were in. If you were uncircumcised, you were out, us and them. And then finally, he was faced with a false belief system that limited the effectiveness of the church. Let me say this. Any time in the church, quite honestly, in any organization, but in the church, if there is um, conflict, strife, and division, effectiveness cannot be possible. Conflict, strife, and division, and partnership, uh, and, and, and um, uh, effectiveness cannot partner together. It, it's just not possible. These three limit the effectiveness of the church. And that's what Paul was facing. So obviously we're not in Paul's day. So how might this apply to us today? How does it apply to the church? What are some of the... Um, Issues that we face, obviously we're not facing the primary issue that Paul was facing, that circumcision was a requirement for salvation. Aren't you glad? I mean, think about it. Yeah, we are facing that. We are facing some of the same challenges that Paul has. We do face legalism in the church sometimes. But the primary thing that he was facing was this belief that circumcision was a requirement. That's not what we're facing. But we do face some very real challenges today. The church faces some very real challenges. So what are those challenges and how do we respond to them? Well, let's identify some of the challenges first. And I, I, I've come up with just a few. I'm sure you could add greatly to my list. But here are some of the things that I came up with. The church today is faced with a challenge of things in the political realm. The left, the right, Democrat, Republican. And please know I'm not trying to make any statement. I'm just saying those are real issues and real challenges that have actually caused division in the church. We're faced with uh, racial issues, white, black. We're faced, something that we're faced with greatly today is the issue of immigration. This is a real challenge for the church. We're faced with uh, gender and sexuality issues, male, female, gender identity, gender confusion, homosexuality. These are all very real issues that the church is faced with today. There are deceptive uh, belief systems within all of these. Uh, one of the issues that the church faces today and is challenged with is, is age. The young versus the old and the old versus the young. It's actually very real. And then one more that I added to the list, is, and it's been around for a long time, is, is abortion. The right to life, the right to choose. Unfortunately, that's an issue that has caused division and strife in the church. And it's caused the church to be ineffective at least not completely effective. These are some, but I'm sure that as I was talking, there are more that you added. So what are we to do? How do we deal with these kinds of challenges that the church faces today if we are called to be reconcilers, reconciling the deceptive belief systems with the truth of the gospel so that the gospel, listen to this, always wins out over the deception that the gospel always proves that it's deceptive and it's not the true way of life what are we to do well 
as reconcilers, people who are called to promote peace while protecting the truth of the gospel, uh, I think one of the greatest things that we can do is follow the model that Paul has set forth in these verses because he gives us a great model of reconciliation. So I want to spend the rest of the time just talking to you about four principles of reconciliation that we find in those 11 verses. And in doing so, we're going to find that two of those principles are kind of a what, and two of them tell us how to go about it. So what are they? So four principles of reconciliation. The first principle of reconciliation that we find in the passage is this. Speak the truth as Paul did to Peter and do it in love. Speak the truth in the same way that Paul did to Peter and do it in love. Here's what we see in uh, verse 14, beginning of verse 14. When I saw that they were not acting in a line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you act like a gent- yet you, you, beha- you live like a Gentile and, and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force the Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? See what he did? He confronted. He, 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 he spoke truth. He was willing to uh, confront the deception, and he did it in love. So how do we know he did it in love? It doesn't necessarily say in the passage, now Peter uh, heard Paul speak to him in a spirit of love. It doesn't really say it that way, does it? In fact, it doesn't say it that way at all. So how do we know? Well, it may not be explicitly stated in the passage, but we know that it's implicit to Paul's spiritual nature. Remember, it's Paul that said, it's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me, who saved me, who gave himself for me. So we can know that Paul was at a point in his own spiritual formation where he was being conformed into the image of Christ in such a way that when he spoke this truth to Peter, when he, when he spoke the truth, he actually did it in love. Um, it's important for you and I to realize that as we are being spiritually formed, that the same thing should be happening in us. That we are being formed into the image of Christ. And so when we are confronted with these deceptive uh, belief systems, that we could confront them, that we could speak to them, we could speak the truth concerning the situation, and that we could do it in love. Here's what I would tell you. If you are unable to address a challenge faced by the church in love, then don't speak at all. Well, that sounds like that cancels out reconciliation, though, right? There's a second part. Again, if you are unable to speak the truth in love, don't speak at all. Instead, ask yourself some questions. What's going on inside of me? What is my motivation? Is my motivation the truth of the gospel, or is it some warped sense of justice inside of me? that wants me to lash out in anger, in hatred. And if you find that it's the latter, then you have to say, God, I'm still working this spiritual formation out, and this is something I need you to work in me because I want to be a reconciler, and I want to be able to speak the truth in love, not in hatred, not in vindictiveness. And so we began to ask for that formation to happen in us, and in that time of formation, we let others face those challenges while we're being spiritually formed. So that's the first principle. Second principle is this. 
Um, we have to be willing to confront deception and division. We have to be willing to confront deception and division. Right off the bat, we see, when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. He was willing to confront it. Not only was he able to speak the truth and love, but he was willing to confront the false uh, mindset, the deceptive mindset. Um, how many of you today would confess that uh, you would say, I do not like confrontation? Raise your hand if you say, I don't like it. Look around the room. The majority of the people in the room. I could have asked, how many of you like confrontation? But I don't know if I, I might avoid you if you say that. Um, for, for most people, it seems like those confrontational situations are very challenging. They're very difficult. We don't like conflict, so we avoid the situation. And here's what I have to tell you. If we're not willing to confront the deceptiveness and we think it'll just go away, it won't just go away. Think of a situation in your life where you said, I'm not going to confront that. Maybe it'll just go away. How did that work out for you? Not very good. It doesn't go away. It just grows and it gets worse. And the division and the, the strife get worse and worse until finally it's very destructive in nature. And it could actually, in the case of the church, could destroy a church. So we have to be able to speak the truth in love as we're willing to confront the situation. Here's the third principle. Attack the problem, not the person. In uh, the earlier, in the earliest services, morning, I said, "Attack the person, not the problem." Wait, wait, wait! That's wrong. That's wrong. We don't ever want to do that. Attack the problem, not the person. And again, that's what Paul did. He said, "When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all." You are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. That was the problem. Peter's problem was he was living like a, a Jew, not a Gentile. He, he was mixed up in, his, in the way he was living. There was that hypocrisy. And so he, 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 Paul didn't say to Peter, Peter, you're a bad person. Instead, he said, Peter, you've got some bad conduct and it needs to be corrected. And there's a big difference I said this in the other services. Parents, that's a great parenting tip too. Don't attack your child. Attack the issue that your child is going through. It's not a parenting situation. So, um, Typically, when we attack the person, how does the person respond? Defensively. And when defensiveness comes in, we've kind of already lost the battle at that point. When defensiveness comes in, it's just not going to... It's not going to work out, at least not in that time. That means we've got to retreat and we've got to regroup how we do it. However, if we're willing to confront uh, the situation, speak the truth in love, attack the problem, not the person, then we're more likely to work through a process where we can come up with the process of reconciliation. That's how we begin to really function as reconcilers. We can't avoid it. It's not going to go away. And we have to attack the problem not the person. But here's, here's the foundation. This is what it's all built on. It's on the fourth principle. Principle of reconciliation. Fourth principle. We must allow God's word to be our guide. We must allow God's word to be our guide. And that's exactly what happened as Paul dealt with Peter in this situation. He brought him the truth of the word. He said, 
Peter, it's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me, gave himself for me. He was speaking truth to Peter. He was reminding him that Christ died once and for all, and now it's no longer the law that attempts to bring salvation, which in reality can't, but it's faith and faith alone in Jesus Christ. And, um, you, you know, it's only through the Word that we can really know what truth is. Would you agree with me? We can only identify the deceptive mindsets because we know what the truth really is. And I, I, I'm concerned that far too often within the church, the church at large, and, and maybe this is something that you're working through, we develop values and belief systems that we assign truth to, but it's not really what Scripture says. We've never really taken the time to do it. We're really stating our opinion based on something we heard somebody say to somebody to somebody that we think might have been in the Bible. It's not until we begin to take the Word in ourselves in, in, a, in a consistent routine where we, where we devour it that we can allow the truth of the Word shine light on the deceptiveness of the culture. And then when that happens, we can then begin the process of reconciliation where we can say, according to the Word, this is deceptive. This is a false belief system. And so we begin the process of reconciliation. The process isn't always easy, but we have the complete dependence of the Holy Spirit to help us through the process. And so today I thought, Wow, if there's anything that we would walk away with is that we need to be, as reconcilers, men and women of the Word. And the only way we can become that is when we recognize the value of the Word. And I want us to read together the passage. You find it in your, in your teaching notes, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 to 17. This, this says it all, and I want us to read it together this morning. We, we, it's on the screen. When I say go, we'll read. Are you ready? Let's go. All Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Did you hear it? It's God-breathed. It's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. That's how we learn what deception is. It's because we're trained in the truth. Until Jesus comes back, the church will exist. And as long as the church exists, we're going to face these challenges. And I believe we're going to face even greater challenges in the days to come. If we're not men and women who are saturated in the truth of God's Word so that we can identify the deceptiveness of the culture, we'll never be able to function fully in the ministry of reconciliation. And we have been called to that ministry. Would you stand? I want to pray for you as I end today. As we end. And I want to pray that over you. Father God, thank you for the power of your word and thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for the fact that your word is a light and a lamp. It's active and it's alive and that it exposes the deceptive mindsets of our culture and empowers us to be uh, reconcilers of the gospel of Jesus Christ so that we can defend the truth the grace and the love of Jesus Christ. I pray over each one of us today that we would be men and women who are more committed to your word than ever before, that we would desire it, that we would hunger for it, and that we would use it as our source, that we would use it as our guide, that truth would be our motivation, and that love would be our guide. 
Father God, I pray that you work that in us. And I pray this in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. For more information on Grace Covenant Church, our service times, ministry opportunities, directions, and more, visit us at gracecovenant.org.